0: Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, so Pastor Ryan would have been preaching this morning, but uh, not yesterday, but a week before that, I was at work, and I got a text from Sam that said, hey, you want to preach? And uh, I was like, um, maybe... And uh, so I asked him about, you know, what? Okay, what was the passage? And I'll get back to you. So he said, "Hey, we're we're still in Mark, Mark chapter 10. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and uh, verse 32 through the end of the chapter." And uh, I made the mistake of reading the passage. And really, this whole passage. It's three different scenes, but they all really point toward serving and service and, and being a slave to our master. And I read that and I thought, oh, I shouldn't have read that. Now I got to do what it says, right? <laughs> so here I am serving this morning. Uh, you got the farm team because the guys are gone, but uh, I'm just honored and uh, to be able to go through the word of God with you all this morning. So let's, we'll read through the passage and then we'll walk through it together. Um, do you remember last week, I just want to cover um, the highlights of last week's sermon. It's kind of like last week at Philippi. Um, Jesus said, let the little ones come unto me. So we talked about the, the need for child life faith and uh, an innocent, unguarded, inherent trust in Christ. And then we saw the man who comes to Jesus and says, Hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, so perceptive, just puts his finger right on the one thing that was in the way of this man following Christ. And he says, I've, I've been righteous, I've done everything right, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, you know, you just need to sell everything and follow me. Because Jesus knew that was the one thing that, was, that he held on to the tightest. So he says, no, you need, you need to get rid of your stuff and follow me. And the man went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. And then the apostles asked... Who then can be saved? Because this guy had it all together, and obviously he, he wasn't up to scratch. And Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but nothing is impossible for God. And then Jesus ends up by saying that those who have given up everything for him and for the gospel will receive a hundredfold, along with persecutions, in this age and in the age to come but many of those who are first will be last and the last first and those are the last words that we read that was verse 32 and that brings 31 excuse me and that brings us to 32 so please stand if you are able and we will read through this passage and as we read through it you're going to see that there are kind of three distinct scenes happening here in the narrative And as we read through, be thinking of ways that these three scenes all tie into each other, how they actually all go toward a central theme. So you ready? Here we go. And I'm reading out of the uh, New English translation, so if it's a little different, uh, that's why. They were on the way, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going ahead of them, and they were amazed But those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and experts in the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him severely, and kill him. Yet after three days... He will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, uh, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, well, Permit one of us to sit on your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I experience? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized by the baptism I experience. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, when the other ten heard this, They became angry with James and John. Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions use their authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to shout. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many scolded him to get him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage. Get up. He's calling you. He threw off his cloak, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man replied, Rabbi, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the road. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance to open your word this morning and to dig through it. We just ask that you would open our hearts and that your word would have its way in us this morning and change us and make us more into the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first scene, Jesus walks towards death with a purpose. So they were on the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going ahead of them and they were amazed, but those who followed were afraid. That's Verse 32. So they were going up, literally, to Jerusalem. So Jericho is down in that D- the Dead Sea Basin, uh, just a little bit to the north and to the east of Jerusalem, but it's down in that rift valley, and it's actually about 800 feet below sea level. So it's way down there. Jerusalem is 2,557 feet above sea level. So when it says they were going up to Jerusalem, they're not kidding. They're not like, oh, up to Portland. No. Up to Jerusalem. It's a long ways up there. Total gain, 3,400 feet in that hike, from just from Jericho up, and they were actually a little below Jericho when we, when we get to the start of this. So it's a hard, steep, dry, dusty, 14-mile hike. So... If you think of it, there's canyons and valleys. I don't know if you've taken a look at the geography, but it's a rough hike. So they're, they're trudging along in the dust, and it's a long, slow hike, so they're talking among one another. So it says, they were going. Who is the they? Well, we know the 12 disciples are there, and it's pretty safe to assume that there were a lot of others as well. So this is... Just before the Passover, like a week, week and a half before the Passover. So, a lot of people would be making this trek up the hill to Jerusalem, getting ready for Passover week. Then it says, they were amazed and afraid. So, when I first read through that, I'm like, okay, they were amazed, well, and afraid. I wonder why they were amazed. Well, let's see. The last thing we read was the last shall be first, and the first will be last. But Jesus just went up ahead. So how does that work? Because he's, like, greater than we are. Jesus is hard. I just don't understand. Or they could have been amazed that here's Jesus heading into the heart of his opposition, This is where the scribes and the Pharisees, the temple, all of the, and Herod himself, who just had John the Baptist beheaded. This is where he's going. He's going right into the heart of his opposition. And Jesus has been, if you remember in chapter 9, he was teaching his disciples about his coming death. He said, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men and killed. So... There's some apprehension. There's got to be some apprehension in their minds. As they, they know, we're heading right into this place where a lot of bad things could happen. So they were amazed that he's going ahead. But they were afraid as well. Because they knew there were things coming. But Jesus is just striding out ahead. He's doing this with purpose. So... The disciples have an idea that some bad things are probably going to happen, but Jesus knows exactly what will happen. And yet, he's striding ahead. But he knows that the 12 need, he can see their apprehension and their fear. So he gathers them together and he says, Look, here's what's in store up the hill. Verse 33 Look, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and experts in the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him severely, and kill him. Yet after three days, he will rise again. And yet he forges ahead. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, permit one of us to sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. So here they are talking about greatness again. Do you remember back in chapter 9 when he first predicted that he would be killed? What were they, what were they doing? They were, they were back there talking, and they get to the house, and Jesus goes, hey, guys, um, hey, what, what were you guys talking about back there? And they're like, um, we're just trying to figure out who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom. This is, we get to see the same thing again here twice in a row. And they're like, you guys, hmm. What are they actually asking for here? They want to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his glory. But what, what does that mean, really? Well, they're asking for the positions of greatest honor. They want to be like ruler number two and ruler number three in the kingdom. So I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, there's 12 disciples. They can't all be the greatest. Maybe they were hanging in the back because they thought the last would be first or the first would be, so we'll just like walk in the back, but Jesus didn't notice that. So I guess we'll just ask. They're just going to cut to the chase. And they know that when Jesus gets to, he's already said, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. Things are going to happen in Jerusalem. So maybe they figure, well, you know, this is it. This is going to be the kingdom. We might as well uh, make sure that we get our place figured out here before all this goes down. Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I experience? And they said, oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, we're able, this is easy. Sure, we could do that. They just don't understand what's about to happen. Jesus is going to take the weight of sin on his shoulders. He who knew no sin was about to be made sin for us. So to say that they didn't get it is just a little bit of an understatement. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and I thought, huh. So imagine you're wandering around the Nevada desert on July 16, 1945. You're just wandering around. Oh, some guy's doing something over there. And a jeep pulls up, and the guy says, hey, you've got to get out of here. Uh, we're going we're gonna to test a new bomb, and uh, I think you really need to leave. You say, oh, that's okay. I'll just stand behind this cactus here. You're like a half a mile away. It's no big deal. And the guy says, no, you don't understand. This is not like anything that you've ever conceived of before. This is totally different. You're not safe here. This is the same kind of thing. They're like, oh, sure, yeah, we can do what you're doing, Jesus. No problem. We can handle it. No. No. No, I don't think you really get it. And I really take a lot of comfort from the book of Mark, because over and over and over again, we see the weakness, the thick-headedness, the I-don't-get-it-ness of the disciples over and over and over again. We look at that and we go, those guys just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And yet, isn't that comforting when you look at that and you go, these are the guys Who These are the actual apostles. These are the people who Christ chose to spread his word on earth, to build the church from scratch, and they didn't get it. And yet God used them in great ways. And that's just so comforting to me because a lot of times I don't get it either. And yet, could God use me? Could God use you even though you don't have it all together? Absolutely. Absolutely he can because it's about him, not about me, not about you. So when Jesus asks them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with, he's really asking them, can you take the punishment of sin on your shoulders? Can you confront death itself and come out victorious? No. No. Only God in the flesh could do that. Jesus came to do the Father's will, and he was obedient unto death on the cross. But then Jesus says, but you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I experience. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. It's for those whom it has been prepared. So the disciples will get to drink the cup of suffering. We know that uh, the Apostle James in the year 44 was beheaded in Jerusalem, so he was martyred for the faith. John, the story is a little cloudy at first. There is a tradition that says he was thrown into a pot of boiling oil, but miraculously was uninjured. But we do know for sure that he was exiled to the island of Patmos and actually wrote Revelations and lived to a, a ripe old age, actually died of old age. But all the other apostles you know, were, were martyred in nasty ways. Verse 41. Now when the other ten heard this, they became angry with James and John. Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions use their authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Notice Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with these guys wanting to be great in the kingdom. He takes that desire and he reorients it. He shifts their focus. He redeems it. And he just shepherds them in the right direction. So you want to be great? Here's how you do it. You want to be right, great? You need to be the servant of all. And the, the word for that first servant there is diaconos. It's the same Word that we get the term deacon from, those who serve. You want to be the first. You want to be the greatest. Be the slave of all, and that word is doulos, and that is you. Sometimes translated servant, but it can also mean just straight up slave. And I think if we if we soften that word, we miss the impact of what he's saying here even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So let's think about this section a little bit. First point is that this isn't an entrance exam. He's not saying this is how you get to be in the kingdom is by being a servant. He's helping us to understand the values of his kingdom. It's a place where the last are first, where service and humility are elevated, where the weak are used to shame the strong. This is the kingdom of God. This is a teaching aimed at those who Jesus has chosen to spread the gospel, and he's saying, this is the way it's going to work. If you're like this, you will spread my kingdom more effectively. This is, what I, this is how I want you to be. And then at first, when I read through this, it just seems strange. For It's like, really? I need to be this slave of all? How does, how does that work? But if you think about it, if you're Christ, if you're in his kingdom, you're not your own. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. This is why Jesus was hurrying up the hill to Jerusalem, was to pay that price for you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, or do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God with your body. So you've been bought at a price. What is it that you were bought out of? says do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one you obey either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness but thanks be to god that though you were slaves to sin you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were entrusted to and having been freed from sin you became enslaved to righteousness so there's no middle ground here the Bible is really clear that there are really only two options. You're going to serve something. You're really enslaved to something. Or at least in the service of something. So both of these options you're serving, you're either a slave of sin and hate and death and darkness, or you've been freed, purchased by Christ, and now you're in his service. It's a digital, it's a zero or a one. It's a yes or a no. You're either in service to death and darkness or you've been saved out of that and you're in service to Christ and you are his, he owns you. A third point is that this is not a to-do list. It, it, it's an attitude. It's a, it's a lens through which we should see ourselves, each other and the world. So it'd be really easy to read through this passage and then go, oh, okay, well, here's five ways you can serve harder and work harder, and this is what you need to do. Everyone needs to be more of a servant. End of sermon. But I really think we need to dig one step deeper and look at what is behind that, what motivates that, what gives us the strength to do that. How do we change our lives? How do we ch- we, we don't change our lives. Christ will change our lives. He's going to turn us into servants for him. So this is a paradigm shift, and it really all flows out of the gospel itself. The gospel levels the playing field between all of us and everyone else. Colossians 3.11 says, here, and that means here in in the kingdom, we as Christians, Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with a heart of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive others. So serving one another begins from a heart that's really been changed by the love of Christ and filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. It's the fruit of the Spirit that enables us And that's what drives us to love and serve one another. It has to come from within. It's not the sort of thing that you can just try harder, try harder, try harder, more stuff to do, and then you'll make it in. No, it's you're in, you're loved, you are one of his, your heart is not the same. And as a result of that, God's love flows into us and out of us into this family and into our communities through a changed heart. So real service is just the love of Christ pouring out of us. First Corinthians 3 says, everyone knows this, this is, the, this is like the wedding passage, right? What is love? But if you think about it in terms of a servant and then read it, it just makes sense. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That sounds like the perfect servant, doesn't it? That's the attitude that we bring to the game. So you wanna be great, serve. It can be intimidating you know, to think about witnessing or maybe inviting somebody to church or having a spiritual conversation with somebody, but it's not intimidating at all to go stack wood for somebody or to sweep off the snow off their driveway or to give them a ride to the airport. Serving is a great way to get to know people and to get through those barriers so that when you have a chance to talk about Christ, they listen. You can stop on the road and change a tire for somebody, maybe mow your neighbor's lawn, cook a meal for somebody. So there's the to-do list, but it's important to see where that comes from. The heart change is the important part. And everything else just flows from that. So let's move on to scene three. As they were leaving Jericho. Uh, hang on. We are in verse 46. 46, thank you. And they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. It's interesting to note that uh, in Mark 10 and Matthew 20, we have the same thing. It says, as they were leaving Jericho. But if you read the Luke passage, it says... As they were coming into Jericho. So which is it? I love this kind of stuff because there's always people saying, say, oh, you can't trust the Bible. See, this one says they were coming into Jericho, and this one says they were leaving Jericho. So you can't trust any of that. It's all made up anyway. But that's not the case. So when I was actually studying about the climb and how the geography of going from Jericho up to Jerusalem... Uh, I ran across the guy who was just talking about, oh, and here's the region of Jericho. And you have, on this side, residential Jericho, which is a little bit further north. And then about a kilometer and a half south of that, you have municipal Jericho, which is the actual incorporated town. But if you live over here, you would say, I live in Jericho. But that's not where you do business. That's over here in municipal Jericho. So what we have is Mark and Matthew talking about residential Jericho. They were just leaving residential Jericho over here. And you have Luke talking about as they were coming into municipal Jericho. So if you know the geography, you don't see a conflict there at all. So a lot of times those sorts of things where we don't get what's going on is because that was 2,000 years ago in a country you may have never been to. But once you do a little studying, you find out, no, it's not a problem at all. So Bartimaeus addresses Jesus as the son of David, which is a term for the Messiah. And it's funny, everybody says, oh, dude, shut up. Quit yelling at him, man. You know, and do we even know this guy's name? His name is Bartimaeus, but... What does that actually mean? If you break that up in, in uh, Hebrew, it's Bar Timaeus. You've heard of like Simon Bar-Jonah? That Bar-Jonah just means son of Jonah. So Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. He doesn't even have a first name. He's so low on the social totem pole that even Mark doesn't record his first name. He's just, you know, the son of the son of Timaeus. And yet Jesus takes time to stop. He's on the most important mission in history. And yet he stops on the way up the hill and says, come here, come here. Jesus stops and calls him. And they say, have courage. He's calling you. Bartimaeus throws off his cloak, jumps up and comes to Jesus. Wouldn't that be a great thing to hear? Jesus is calling you. Hey, it's Jesus. He's calling you. Have courage. I would love to hear that. Jesus asks him the same question as James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Isn't that interesting? It's the exact same question, two different different scenes. And he says, master, teacher, rabbi, let me see again. And Jesus just says, Go, your faith has healed you. And the man immediately follows Jesus on the road. Amazing. So that question comes up twice. What do you want me to do for you? Very different answers. It makes one wonder how how would I answer that question? How would you answer that question? What do you want me to do for you? Would we answer that in selfish ambition or in simple faith? The one, the request was, hey, we want to be, be awesome. And the other one was just, I know you're the son of God, and I just want to see again. Just simple faith. So that brings us to the end of our text. So how... How best to sum this all up? How do we make these three separate scenes all flow together? Jesus is continuing to teach the disciples the values of his kingdom, the kind of upside down ideals that really are not intuitive to us. He's trying to show them that contrast between what greatness looks like here. I want to sit at the right and left of the king and what greatness looks like in his kingdom. Like working for someone else and thinking of everyone else as more important than yourself. So in the first scene, we see Jesus motivated to get to Jerusalem. His disciples are amazed and afraid, so much so that he stops and explains what's going to happen. He knows what's coming, and yet he forges ahead. Then in the second scene, he uses the desire of James and John to rule and to be honored, to teach them what true greatness is. And to teach them that the Son of Man came not to be served like an earthly king would be, but to serve and to give himself for those he loves. And then in the third scene, Jesus like, gives a lived out example of the lesson he just taught. So he illustrates that he came to serve by stopping and serving someone right after he says, hey, you need to be the servant of all, he stops and he just does that right in front of them. So he tells us he came to serve, then he talks about the value of serving and then he serves. He gives the lecture and then he gives us the lab. He gives us the principle and then he gives us the practical. He's a good teacher. That's how every teacher should do it, right? So the truth of the human condition is this. You are always serving something. The Bible says that ultimately you're either a slave to sin or you're in service to God. It's, it's that digital equation. It's a one or a zero. There's no 0.5. The bit is either flipped zero or one. And you might say, I'm, I'm not a slave to anything. I'm, I do what I want. In the end though, Aren't we motivi- we're, we're motivated by our desires. We want money, power, fame, entertainment. And doesn't all of that flow from a desire for fulfillment, meaning, comfort, love? But when we try to satisfy our desire for those things in the way that the world tells us will make us happy, we always end up disappointed. It never works out. There's always the, we need the next thing. We're trying to scratch that itch that we just can't get to. We just can't quite reach it. So we end up in that never-ending cycle of, I need a new job. I need a new relationship. I need a new car. I need another house. I don't know if I just, you know, surfing didn't work out for me. I think I'll try rock climbing instead. There's always something just over the horizon that we're trying to reach for that will satisfy us deeply. But it never lasts. Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. That's kind of funny because we just talked about you need to be the servant of all. That sounds like work to me. (laughs) But when he says, come unto me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yet, he takes time to care for blind beggars. He values the poor and the downtrodden, and he gave his very life for those of us that he loves. And he did that while we were still sinners. So, when he says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest, he means that he will give you that long time, deep down satisfaction of, Sigh. I know I'm okay, I'm good. Why am I good? It's not because of me. I know I'm okay because Jesus loves me and he gave himself for me. I'm okay. Do I like my job? Yeah, it's okay. But it's not the pinnacle of my existence. It's a way to provide for my family. Do I love my kid? Yes. I would do anything for her. But she's not what makes me okay. If God forbid he were to take her away from me. It'd be tough, but I know I'm okay in Christ. That's where my support is. That's where my strength is. That's where my foundation is. It's not about stuff. It's not about what I do or who I am. My identity is as a child child of God. It's his, I am in his service. He's bought me he paid for me, and I'm a servant of God. When we understand the depth of the, the love that he has for us and the price that he paid for us, how can we look at that call to be a servant and go, mm, I don't think so. In a way, don't we really owe him everything? I used to think about the Christian life kind of like, what is God's plan for my life? The focus being my life. And I think a better way to see it is my life for God's plan. It's kind of a subtle change of viewpoint, but it really does change everything. It's a wonderful thing to be owned by God. We are in the service of the the king of the universe. And as a result, we end up in service to one another. And being in a community like that, like this, where we truly serve one another and the love of God flows out, it's an amazing experience. It's amazing. So back, it's been just over a year, uh, my wife and I and daughter, we all got COVID. COVID. And we were stuck in the house for, you know, quarantine and all that. And yet, all you all just poured out God's love on us. And when we had, we couldn't fit everything in the fridge that showed up. It was just food all the time and phone calls and people serving and making us feel loved. And it was, thank you, it was awesome. And I know that's happened more than once. And that is what it's all about, that we're here in service to God, that we end up serving one another. That's how you be great in his kingdom. And that's the paradigm shift that Jesus was really trying to get across to his disciples. You want to be great? Serve. Serve. I think Philippians 2, 3 through 8 really tells us how to do this, and I want to close with just reading through that. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself, By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That's the kind of king we serve. He is worthy of it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your son for us. For loving us. We just ask that you would pour your love into us and that you would fill us with it so much that we can't help but have it pour out of us to one another, to our communities, that we would, one by one, one person at a time, that we would change the world, that we would be salt and light, and that we would truly know what it is to be in your service, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.